Wagwan, everybody. Welcome to the Dis Afimi History Podcast, where we'll be speaking about history and as well family history and how history relates in terms of Caribbean people um, for the present as well as in the past and how in the past what that does and brings forth for what we are going through at present and what we can learn from our history, from our family, and take that moving forward. So I do hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you like it, please ensure to subscribe, like, and review. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carlston, for coming on to the podcast. And before we start, I just wanted to have you just introduce yourself and let uh, the listeners know about your group. Okay, I am Carlston Walters. I am a founder member of the Caribbean Family History Group. Uh, we operate out of the borough called Solihull in the uh, West Midlands in England. Um, the group, its name, original name was the Caribbean Family History Group, Solihull and Birmingham. Um, with recent changes we're going online, we've just settled and leave it at Caribbean Family History Group. Um, that I was, I said, a founder member. I was initially the chair. And when it first started, we've been going since 2008. Um, and I now I'm the secretary. Uh, we're not massive, I wouldn't have said. We have a, we're, we, we organize around the constitution. And when we're of a certain size, um, our group is run by a core group that. Um, up to 12 individuals and um yeah that's what i'll say for now okay. we've had different chairs we have a chair at the moment called fatia fatty warren um and we have different roles that people fulfill and if there aren't, there aren't people to fulfill roles then we do it collectively that's kind of how we're organized perfect thank you so much for that and then so how does your group assist in the research for you know for family historians that want to get further guidance from your group um i'm gonna let you edit this because uh, i think in terms of your first question um the why the group started so i'll give you some more background i think that's just if i were to give some more background yeah. so it started um in 2000 before 2006 local library um solihull i guess is is regarded as a, a kind of mainly caucasian middle class borough uh, the library ran classes in British family history mm -hmm. and um, 10 week beginners classes. And it seems that within the library, it wasn't some movement of the conscious Caribbean or African or community. I don't think it was just their own conversation that said, you know, if you're not white and British, you can't really benefit from our courses. So they organized getting funding and they asked the teachers that were teaching their classes or people they knew, do you know anyone that could teach our classes applied to different countries, Africa, Caribbean, India. And I happened through a church connection, knew the teacher of, she was an American, but she was teaching their beginners class in family history. And she knew me and she asked me the question at the time I was, so even though I don't teach anymore, and a little bit too life consuming, I was practiced in having to prepare and deliver lessons. I was just practiced at it. Not gifted, but practiced at it. Yeah. So when she asked me, I, I was interested in doing family history. And um, 
I said, yes. And I panicked because I thought, what do I know about family history? But I was committed enough. I said, well, I just went with it. And I, they gave me their beginners classes. Um, so I had those as my um, scaffolding. And I was a week ahead of the people I was teaching. And, um, and it was a revelatory experience. You know, I, I'd been um, attending Latter-day Saint Church at the time and had done so for some years. And I sat there and believed I didn't have to worry about not doing my family history because the records weren't kept. And I fully... Utterly, I'd sat there for years, fully believing that, relaxed and chilled about it all. And then lo and behold, as I started teaching these 10-week beginners classes, you know, like the basics, um, lo and behold, each week, it was one revelation after another. <laughs> all these records were there. They'd been microfilmed. Oh, my goodness. Just get back to 1930. You can go back, depending on the island, 100 years, maybe more. Yeah. It's like mind-blowing. Um, and then... I taught a lesson on photographs one is it Monday or I think one Monday night. I was let's photographs. And I went to my mother's that night and she went, Oh, I've got some photos. And lo and behold, out came these photos of my great grandparents who I'd never seen. And and um, so it just began this journey. And um, it was an unpressured time, it was an interesting time. People got value from it. Um, and I repeated the classes three times in that year. And then Fatia, who's the chair of our group at the moment, she did another session the year later that was still funded. Um, and after that had happened, there were a number of ex-students of those 10-week beginners classes. Um, it just felt like, I felt it, and, and maybe some others felt it too, I felt it like, if we just all go back to our homes, then all of this knowledge just, just disappears back into our homes. Yeah. So why don't we kind of meet and just keep it going? So that's kind of how it started. It started informally. And we would meet each month and we became into a cycle. At the time, the records weren't online. They were microfilms. Um, the main records for the Caribbean were done by the Latter-day Saint Church, the or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, short of Latter-day Saint Church, which has the family family search arm that's the name of their arm so they had microfilmed these records and um kind of thought just popped out of my head um so that was it so we would go one month we would go down to london where the microfilms were at the main latter-day saint church that had the full caribbean collection you could order microfilms into local family history centers yes but in terms of that would take a lot to do all those. So we would order, um, we would go down to London and it became the tradition. We'd get on the bus. There were times the, the coach, the coach was one pound. We would take pride in booking our one pound ticket in advance. We'd go down as a group of between four to eight to 10 people. And then we'd sit for the whole day with our sandwiches and do our research, as did others. Um, and this went on and then... So we, the group started informally in 2008. And then by 2010, we kind of felt we should become more formal. I can't remember exactly what triggered that, but we decided to become more formal. A member of the group who had some expertise brought a constitution, the basic one. 
And so we create, we we formalized ourselves around the constitution and that constitution is a living document that we use. It's evolved over the years. Um, and we then, th those are, I think with, with many people, like maybe in marriages, in new groups, it's a romantic time. You know, we, we had meetings, we would go to London. We had meetings up here one month, we go to London. And, um, and it was just a really enjoyable time traveling to and fro and doing that. And then we decided to become formal. We got a constitution, um, chair, secretary, um, treasurer, that sort of, sort of stuff in a light way. Um, and then we just started, and I held both roles. So I love doing the emails and internet side of, the internet communication side of things. I like communicating. Um, so that's kind of how the group started and how it formed. And the group has then gone on, I think in about 2000, so 2006, we met, 2008, we were formal. Um, 2000, I think 2000, no, it might be 2000, well, maybe the dates are wrong. 2008, 2010, we became formal. Okay. But in around that time, we decided to put on our first exhibition mm -hmm. in about 2010. And that's in Solihull Library, the core library in Solihull in the West Midlands where we meet and we're doing one this year. And we've been doing since since that time, we've missed we've missed the pandemic period and a couple of years we've missed maybe a refurbishment, but each year we've done an exhibition. So um, the original one was just just our family history stories. Somebody talked about, they, they had some images of their father's journey from, from the shipping list journey and the and the and what went on on the ship and and different things that happened um that was one somebody had found a, uh, an ancestor who fought in the first world war so she had some so it was just stories we'd picked up in our own research which we depicted on these wars and then we've just done different different aspects of family history one year we did the windrush shipping list and we got permission to print out the whole of the windrush shipping list mm -hmm. on a number of boards the whole list and then we just highlighted aspects of it. Like, for example, people didn't know there was a large contingent of Polish people on that shipping, on that ship. People weren't aware of, um, unless you knew that. And um, so we've done different things. This year, uh, one year during the 1914 First World War celebration, um, we did an exhibition entitled We Were There Too, because one of my favourite stories is that of a historian I heard speak as a young man. He knew that the First World War was also fought in Africa. He knew that his grandfather had fought in the First World War. So when the, he was living in Kent in the south of England and, and he realised that when his, um, the teacher asked, who has a, had a father who fought in the First World War? He put up his hand and the teacher said, put your hand down. He said, but I did. You're lying. Go and see the. And he was sent to the head teacher, and he was suspended from school for insisting that he had a father, a grandfather that fought in the First World War, and that really just. Um, and he's a historian now, and I, yeah. I should know his name. It's really remiss yeah. of me not to know his name. Um, but it's a fantastic story. But we wanted to do that. We wanted to do uh, an exhibition. We were there too, and then talk about how you can find your ancestors in the military records. Um, and the West India Regiment, et cetera, et cetera. So we've done different exhibitions. This year, our theme and focus we're putting together now is you can get so far back in the Caribbean, um, you can get so far back using 
civil registration, birth, marriage and death records, yes. or church records, baptism, marriage and burial records. You can get so far back. And if your ancestors are free or of the planter class or, you know, of the class that was free, then you would continue using the standard records to the degree they've, they've been survived in the Caribbean in the climate, church records, etc., etc. There's a normal um, records that people use in family history. But if your ancestors are Afro-Caribbean um, with African heritage and were enslaved, then before 1838 and you're lucky between 1838 and 1850 that how well the records were kept from 1838 when slavery ended in the British Caribbean um, you only have slave records to use to try and get back to um, the the records the first slave registers which were around that some did start before 1817 but the main beginning tends to be 1817 for slave records slave registers um and if you can get back and if you can identify ancestors and these slave registers were kept every two to three years up to 1834 when um slavery was ended formally in the british caribbean uh, and then after that they had the apprenticeship period up to 1838 and that's when slavery ended um, but navigating that period is what we're trying to start the process because some people have done it, yes. but there's, there's not a sense in which you can say, how do you do this and say, the way to do this is to do A, B, C, D. You may not find them, but, and then we're trying to begin that process to make it accessible to just a normal Joe who's interested in finding out about it. That's kind of our aim. So, so that's us, that's how we start, that's why we started, and that's kind of the pattern of our behaviour. We still have meetings, we have meetings um, every month, except for August and December, and we have meetings on the last Saturday of the month. Um, and I can talk more about the group and what we're doing at the moment later on, if you wish. Um, that's the background to us as a group and how we started and why. Perfect. And it's, it's interesting that you, you know, for gave that story in terms of going down to London to look, go to the Family History Centre there to, you know, that's kind of, uh, I guess it started off as a, a friendship and, uh, you yeah. know, everyone collaborating because of something that drew them all together for this one thing, yeah. which is researching the family history. So that, that was kind of uh, nice, very nice to, to hear. And and, 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 in, and as well with what you were saying, I guess, in terms of, I guess, do you guys you notice in terms of a particular point where family historians kind of get stuck or they get blocked, whether it's in coming to the, the slave records or in other items. Do you have any examples of that? Um, yes, I do. Um, the group had an, um, my experience, the Caribbean is a melting pot and um, as mentioned, it was an economic melting pot and a money-making melting pot. So um, people went there to make their fortune and they did make their fortune. Um, people went there because either 
fellow Africans sold them into slavery. Yes. And uh, yes. and I I think I have long since let go of the idea that this thing worked because white men did it all. Uh, it 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 wouldn't it would never have worked as long as it did had it not been a a whole man thing. There were men of Africa capturing and selling men of Africa to men of other parts of the world. Um, whether they knew fully what was happening to their fellow Africans when they did that, I don't. I doubt it. Mm-hmm. Um, but for anyone who's listening, if you get the chance, listen to the story of the Clotilda, the last slave ship, um, which I did recently, and, and I found it an amazing education in how um, the background to how it all how it probably worked. Um, so, um, but in terms of so with that as a background, that melting pot and the records that people kept to keep track of that melting pot, keep no, to keep track of their endeavors to make money, their pro- their property whatever you know um, they were growing various things they grew sugar and, and and tobacco and other things they grew um that would define different people went there for different reasons so when we got involved in being connected with it wider world we got invited to this program called who do you think you are yes. um which is in both the uk and around the world now it's a franchise format and they had a yearly for a while they had a yearly um what's it called live event at an exhibition center and then some you'd have guest stars from the show would come on and lots of the i think it was organized with the society of genealogists over here and lots of societies would be there so it was a whole family history event that would go on for a few days it's gone on for a few years and then one year they had um a chef called ainsley harriet they'd done a program on Yes. And yeah. he was being re, re, what's the word, re invited back to the event. And so they were looking, they asked the question, is there a Caribbean group or any, you know, Caribbean researchers who could be there as well? And so we were made aware, uh, contact who we knew made us aware of this. So we emailed them. Um, we navigated how to be present without the level of expenditure they would normally ask because we were just like this informal group that just met. We didn't a funded group at all. We got invited and thank that they invited us and we went. And so we arrived with enthusiasm with about two weeks to go thinking we will have the odd exposure to people of the Caribbean who will come to our, to our cubicle stand and we'll help them. We're busy the whole week because every Tom, Dick and Harry who's British is researching. Nearly all of them will have, not all of them, but a significant number have ancestors that were in the Caribbean. Yes. And we, and over the years that we attended, some of the things that we've had people walk up to us and say, remember one year, very well-spoken, very well-spoken, like, like gentry, you know, whatever, came up and said, this is my great great grandfather and he was a mulatto but he was so proud that he could come and share that with 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 someone you know he had no like um you know this is disgusting he was like you know if, if somebody said he was landed gentry you know upper class of english society 
that's what I, who I was speaking to. But he could trace back because obviously maybe his family was enslaved, whatever else. But he could trace all the way back to that ancestor, and he knew they were mixed race, yes. and he just wanted to share that with somebody, and he just wanted to. We had a woman that came to us one Sunday morning, just just me and one of the other girls in the group had arrived early to attend, and uh, she came with a picture, and the picture had. The image of her grandfather at the back, looking about 14 or 50, sitting on chairs was a very white looking man and a very white looking woman. And then sitting on the floor were four very white looking children. Occasional white, okay. So she said, her question was, she was a very English white looking lady. She said, can I ask you a question? We said, yes. She says, um, can you tell me, do you think my grandfather's black or mixed race we went okay so then she looked at the picture and we went wow we would say he is based on what the features the, the color based on what we're looking at we would say and she went that is such a relief because my aunts would say oh no no he's dark because he used to work in the gas works and um my daughter said mother that's stupid that's just stupid mother they sent her along or she came along to ask us that question and we were able to talk to her and we were able to to guide her in a use of dna because dna can be misused a lot and it yes. can be overused and overinterpreted. and i've always had that sense of it and um but i was able to say to her in terms of she was stuck. And how would she know if this guy was her grandfather, whether he was their children? I said, does your grandfather have a male line from him to your generation? She said, yes. Okay. Does his brother in the picture have a male line from him to this generation? She said, yes, he does. Right. Go and do a Y chromosome test. Because a Y chromosome test will pick out the single father's father's line. If those two brothers have the same father, they'll have the same Y chromosome result. If they have a different Y chromosome result, they had different fathers. So that for me was a, a, an example where she was stuck. How would yes. she resolve that? She needed someone who could say, yeah, I'd say the mixed race. And then someone who knew enough to say, and if you want to separate out, if they're not brothers, there was some added information. For example, they live near a dock that would explain why she, met, she might have met a man of color. She was walking out with an English guy, but she might have met a man of colour. Charming, things happened, a child is conceived. Yes. In the docks, a man's firstborn son would work on the docks. That's how it would happen in terms of your father to son. In this family, the secondborn son worked on the docks in the name of the firstborn son. Okay. So he had the name of his brother, which was like really odd. Why would you do that? So they were like factors. So it was very interesting to be able to help that lady in terms of giving her visually, we think there is mixed race going on here. Yeah. And if you want to test it and get the evidence to support it, do a Y chromosome test. So that was a, a neat way we helped somebody that came that year. Um, go on. No, it's just interesting that not only is that that they're at a, a particular point, but they also are coming to your group because they there's a connection as well that you can be able to relate to some of whatever that they're going through, which is kind of interesting as well. 
Yeah, I mean, for us, we try and reinforce the Caribbean is a place, not a colour. So at times we have to be conscious we're not an Afro-Caribbean community group. Mm -hmm. We're not. We we do go there and we do contribute. But you need to be as welcome. If we get it right, you need to be as welcome to come to our group as an ancestor of a slave owner trying to find your your ancestors as the alternative. It can't be that you feel uncomfortable. And that's what we try to maintain in our consciousness, um, that we are a family history group not a particular race or whatever. The, the Caribbean was a, a real mixture. Um, and we try to and uh, help in that. Um, another one of a similar ill, um, an example where a researcher came looking for us. Once people knew we were there, they would come looking for us. And she didn't miss us the year before, or we didn't attend the year before for whatever reason. And she came and she had um, the same thing had happened with her cousin. Her cousin's mother was walking out with an English guy. She lived near a port. She must have met a man of colour. No, no, that isn't true. That isn't true. That's not true. What happened here in the 1940s, the British government brought the talented young people from the from the from the Commonwealth, yes. and they would train them yeah. in stuff, maybe to help back in their um, islands or countries of origin, and so. Um, one of these men was a guy, I think, it was, I think he was Jamaican, he'd come across I think, in 1948 and he was trained in telecoms and it must have been, he must have met this, this, this um, researcher's aunt and a child was conceived. Um, he, the, the dialogue was interesting, like, oh no, I can't take a, a white child home back to the Caribbean whatever and there was this interesting dialogue of languages at that time so and then apparently the, the grandmother said no, that child's going nowhere my grandchild's staying here so that the, this so the english lady continued walking out with her english boyfriend or partner and they married and this mixed race child was part of the family but i guess that would cause some level of friction and um, the person who had come to see us, this was her cousin, this mixed race individual. Um, she said, my father felt sorry for her. So she spent loads of time at our house and we became like fixed, like sisters. Yes. Um, so this individual came, this English um, researcher came and said, what I'm trying to do is find her Jamaican ancestry. And I've tried, but I can't find it. And... Um, um, and but she in, in doing her research, she, as I said, she'd come across a marriage of a guy who had the same first name but the different surname, so she couldn't work it out. And she had this by chance, she hadn't brought it to the table when we were talking. Um, so we we spoke a while, we went through what she'd done, we, we had a search with what she knew, and then when she presented this marriage certificate, my mind went click because I said, My father, his parents, um, weren't married when he was conceived, and they never married, they married other people. But he was raised and was known at school all his growing up years as his mother's maiden name, Daniel. But he wanted to be known as his father, under his father's name, when he came to England to live. So on his passport, it says that. It says, John, I mean, Raymond Lionel Walters, previously known as Daniel, but his father's name is Walters. And it says that in his his passport. Um, And because of this personal experience, I went, wait a minute, same name, different surnames, what if he changed his name? 
to his father's name or to his or from his mother's name. So then we took the second name and I went back to the Jamaican records and we found him. And we found him in the records and in finding him in the records, she, this, this research was able to, to, to tell her, her cousin, this is your half-brother. Find her, she's found a half-brother. Um, this man that married in England hadn't gone back to Jamaica. He had stayed in England, um, but not under the name that she understood. So we'd found that, who he was. We knew that he'd married an English woman. He, she had a half, she had a half-brother. He lived in France. She got to meet him and she got to know and be able to access her Caribbean line of the family as well. So that's a kind of, and we, we learned that it wasn't that we were these great deep experts. It's that because like a lot of things, if you're looking at something enough, you see things that someone has never looked at it doesn't see. Yes. And that was it. We were there looking at those records. So we just had insights that other people didn't see. So that's kind of how we've helped maybe your Caucasian white researchers with different things. Um, in terms of those of Afro-Caribbean descent, it's been mainly the standard stuff, showing them where the records are kept, how to look for them, doing research. There, were, there was an interesting experience I had when I started, when I was teaching these classes. One of the people that taught the classes, because they had more than one class, was an English researcher that I knew. And so he was teaching these classes, and after three weeks of teaching these classes, three of the ladies of Afro-Caribbean descent came up to him and said, and he was of English and he discovered Irish descent. And he said, they came up to him and they said, um, we'd like to apologize. And he said, okay, why is that? Because when you walked in the room and started teaching this, we asked ourselves, how could a white man teach us our history? This misconception that genealogy is different that it's not just doing what you do in genealogy. If it has a color on it, it must be unique and special and done in a certain way. And you have to be of that color to get it and be able to teach us. Um, so that, that always stayed with me. And I guess in terms of working with those of Afro-Caribbean descent, I guess I've had this ongoing awareness. They don't realize they're simply doing genealogy. So they don't often just the number of times, and it happened even today, the number of times you say, do you have a pedigree chart? Is it down on a tree? No, it's on bits of paper, it's in their head, it's on a drawn, you're just doing genealogy. It's been done for centuries. It's just done in a certain way. There are certain things, insights you have to have when you're dealing with the Caribbean, but it's still just genealogy. Parent, to child, the grandparents, so-and-so. And so, in terms of being stuck, often people have they don't have their pedigree chart in a nice, clear, ordered way they can read and that they can use to share with people that are used to looking at pedigree charts and can read them and say to you, look at that, that doesn't add up, Those, there's a misconception. Without that chart, it's harder to be helped by other yeah. people. So that's, that's um, there is, so that's one obstacle that comes up a lot. Um, there is the secrecy yes. and the shame that comes with the antics that the whole slavery period and its legacy brings with it. And I, and I, I don't think we can just blame it on slavery alone because these antics happen in human nature anyway. But I recall one of our events, somebody came and asked a question. It's quite a sensitive subject. So I'm, and I, I, we're not going to name names, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just questioning whether I should. 
share that. So I'll I'll I'll, I'll hold fire on that one, um, except to say that um, it involved um, somebody could removed from the Caribbean, staying in a house, the man of the house having children with that woman while he was still married, the pair the, the couple decided to stay married, and some agreement was made to, to tell the children that he was the granddad, which went on for a number of years until the children of the couple said, we're not having this, tell it like it is. So that's, so you can see what people are secretive. Yes. And 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 there, there are things like that. Um, I can think of one of my aunts telling me um, her, her father's line isn't my line. Um, she's an aunt, she's a half aunt technically, but they're on a, she remembers the story they're on a boat with their father and then a woman either speaks to him or make contact he looks sheepish one of the sister, one of the daughters that's on the boat says who's that and it turns out it's it's a sister a half sister of theirs from another island from where he lived so there's so you can see why with those kind of things where people get respectable or they think that they're in church now or whatever else people it can be you can be stuck not knowing some information unless you're very good at doing the research and can bypass people that don't want to talk so that's sometimes yes. a technique of learning genealogy so you can bypass people that don't want to talk and then sometimes when when they discover you've found the information anyway then they'll talk because oh okay they'll they'll talk um but staying on topic people get stuck they so they get stuck with with secrecy they get stuck with not having a, 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 a building the family tree, they get stuck with not knowing, understanding the process of research. Um, and I don't even claim that I use the process of research today. I was reminded of today uh, of something, of knowing, you know, how to get back a generation by using a birth record. If you can't find the information uh, at the time it should happen, have you found the death record, which might have information about how old they were to be able to trace back to try and really narrow down. Because marriage records in the Caribbean Sometimes they don't have an age with a person getting married, so you can't use them as well. Or um, their ages aren't right for reasons that aren't clear. They're like two, five, ten years out for various reasons that, is, that isn't clear. So it's knowing the research process. Um, I met a lady once, an English lady, um, at the Family History Centre in London, and she made me laugh. She said, I've got very good at family history because my, my ancestors just lied the whole time and 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 she had she had to research and find out that was a lie they weren't married or that was a lie he was a bigamist or that was a lie she just and she learned so yeah. it's it's learning the family history process so you bring that to bear when you're doing your research so that's so that's something that people need to do so they don't get stuck um this is the end of part one with Carlston Walters from the Caribbean Family History, and we'll continue the next episode in two weeks' time. So have a listen then to part two. Thank you so much. Hoped you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please make sure to like, follow, subscribe, and write a review for the episode wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you.